welcome to Global Crossings, a podcast produced by the Global Leadership Institute at Boston College. As part of Northern Ireland at Boston College's Leadership Fireside chat series, Professor Ian Greer, President and Vice Chancellor of Queen's University Belfast, discusses the role of higher education as Northern Ireland reaches out to the world. Professor Greer discusses the university's work to develop student skills, drive innovation, and create economic growth for Northern Ireland and global partners. Professor Greer also reflects on the challenges of the COVID crisis in education. Moderated by Dr. Robert Morrow, Director of the Global Leadership Institute at Boston College, with opening remarks provided by Mr. Andrew Elliott, Director, Northern Ireland Bureau. Enjoy the podcast, adapted from a previously recorded webinar on Wednesday, February 24th, 2021. And thank you for taking the time. Uh, it's been a busy couple of weeks here at um, Boston College and with our uh, leadership uh, series. Today, we are um, thrilled to welcome the uh, president and vice chancellor of Queens University, Belfast, Professor Ian Greer, uh, to, to the Northern Ireland at Boston College leadership fireside chat series. Um, before we introduce our guest and, and begin our conversation, I'd like to introduce Mr. Andrew Elliott, the director of the Northern Ireland Bureau, our partner on this project. Um, Andrew, uh, would you like to say hello to everybody? Hi, Bob, and hello, everyone. It's really great to be associated once again with the um, with Boston College and the uh, the fourth in our series now, Fireside Chats, uh, with leaders of significance from Northern Ireland. Uh, the first three of those events concerned executive ministers, uh, but this time we're turning to the issue of leadership in the university sector, and specifically to that wonderful institution, the Queen's University of Belfast, uh, with which I've be, been associated for many years and I'm really pleased to have the opportunity uh, to, to engage with Queen's. Professor Ian Greer has been President and Vice-Chancellor of Queen's since August 2018 uh, and has uh, offered very significant leadership uh, to the university and moved it in some very interesting directions during that time. He has previously had significant leadership experience in the University of Manchester, in Hull York Medical School, uh, and also, of course, in, in Glasgow and, uh, and in Manchester. So uh, we're really looking forward to hearing uh, Professor Greer talk to us uh, today and tell us about the work that he's doing in areas such as innovation, uh, the community involvement of the university, developing international links, building north-south engagement on the island of Ireland and with Great Britain, and uh, some really fantastic stuff that we have the chance to hear more about today, and I'm very much looking forward to it. So I'm very pleased to welcome uh, Professor Ian Greer, the Vice-Chancellor of Queens. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks for your uh, time. I know you're uh, busy in the run-up uh, to, to March and all the celebrations that take place, uh, and, and finding the time to support this um, project in these discussions is, is really very much appreciated by us here at Boston College. Thanks again. Um, Andrew's already given everyone, a, I think, a, a a comprehensive um, introduction to uh, Professor Greer. Um, as we noted, he's the president of Queen's University of Belfast, um, and he took up that role in 2018. Uh, in 2015, uh, he was appointed vice president at the University of Manchester and the dean of the medical faculty there. Um, and it looks to me like you began your um, executive leadership experience in back in 1991 at the University of Glasgow when you're a head of obstetrics. Um, you're also a leader outside of the university, 
Um, you founded the Health Innovation Research Alliance for, for Northern Ireland. You were a leader in the Northern Health Science Alliance as well. So you have uh, quite a lot of crossover experience out of the academic um, and the training world into um, the applied applied world. Um, Ian, I'd like to begin a little bit with, with some of that journey. Um, and, you know, at, at, there are several uh, points, you know, during the course of your career where you could have gone in different directions. Um, you went from being a, a full-time practitioner to being an, an educator, and you went from being inside of a medical uh, school to, you know, now president of Queen's University, which is a diverse um, set of, of, of curriculum and, and different kinds of challenges than, than a medical school might have or different kinds of opportunities that a medical school might have. I mean, at each of those junctures, uh, maybe you could tell us about, you know, why you made those choices that you did to, to, to take your career from being a, you know, a, 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 a full-time practitioner of medicine to being a full-time, you know, university uh, academic and, and head. Well, thanks, Bob. First of all, it's great to be here. Um, and last time I was in the States, physically in the States, was almost a year ago, just uh, around St. Patrick's Day, and a lot's changed in the world since then. And it's good to be able to share uh, some of these uh, events with you. But turning to your question, I, I guess my career journey is one of evolution. And I've always enjoyed making a real difference to people, a difference to people's lives. And I've also enjoyed working across disciplines and sectors. So when I was in clinical practice, I had trained both in internal medicine and in OBGYN, and I worked at the crossover with women who had medical disorders and who were also pregnant. And that was a really interesting interface because you could bring new and different perspectives that could drive forward their care, their patient outcome, both through direct clinical care and through research. And I was always very uh, uh, tied into the research agenda from my very first weeks as a, as a doctor. I also enjoyed the educational aspects, developing the next generation of doctors. Now that, hap that happened at a subject level, a single discipline uh, input to that education and gradually grew to looking after a whole medical school and, and developing a, a whole cadre of doctors for the workforce who could themselves change patient care change the delivery of services and make a real difference. It was then a natural evolution to take on a whole faculty and indeed to merge faculties, including health, medicine, veterinary medicine and life sciences to create even bigger impact. Because the major challenges that we face in science and society today can only be addressed using large cross-disciplinary and often cross-sector teams. And that cross-sector approach uh, arose, I got opportunities to work across various sectors, healthcare, biotech, uh, and regional innovation to make a real difference. So my journey from being a practitioner to being the head of a university department, to being dean, to being vice president, to being president, just seemed a logical set of um, developments for me throughout my career. Bob, when you were making those uh, transitions, uh, what are some of the you know, the biggest challenges that, that you've had. You, you, you spoke about um, merging departments and about promoting cross-disciplinary work. 
Um, is that something that you know uh, you you found? Uh, obviously, it's an it's a necessity now in, in the contemporary universities. You pointed out. Is that something though that you found uh, was difficult to do, or you know, what has that experience been like as as you've made those um, you know those pushes to 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 create a more impactful um, university experience? Well, it does present its own challenges. Uh, but I guess the challenges are often common ones because it's usually around people and their perspectives, giving them a vision, giving them a goal, seeing the advantages of working together and creating that type of team approach I've always found very fulfilling. So when new opportunities arise that take you down that type of path, they're almost irresistible, I would say, especially when you've completed the task that, that, that you set about in your previous role. So it's a sequential set of tasks which have, um, I guess, overlapping components in, in relation to their approach. That's really interesting. I, um, when we opened up the room, I did fail to, to remind people that they should feel free to ask questions. There's a chat function and there's the, the Q&A function. Uh, we will turn to those questions at, um, at some point here during the conversation. And I think there's, there'll be opportunity for us to, to engage on that. So I'll, I'll ask people to do that. Um, you, you came into to Queens in, in 2018 before uh, the world was reminded of what a pandemic is and, and the experiences and the crisis that uh, universities have, have gone through. Um, obviously, what you expected then is not what um, you're, you're doing entirely now. They're, they're bound to have been some changes. Um, what has this shift been like for you as president? You come in with one set of strategic goals, there's an existential crisis, um, and you have to act in, in a different way. I, I mean, have you abandoned your old kind of initiatives, or you know, have you been managed to bring them along with you uh, through this crisis? If anything, Bob, I would say that my ambitions have been accelerated by the challenges and the opportunities presented by the pandemic. So when I came to Queen's, my ambition for the university was one of civic responsibility. Queen's really is an anchor institution in Northern Ireland, and we've got substantial responsibility for improving our society and driving forward our economy. To do that, we've got to be outward looking. We've got to deliver social and economic benefit to our society, not just in Northern Ireland, but across the world, because Queen's is a global university. And we want to do that. We want to deliver those changes in the economy and in society through our international excellence in research and our high quality teaching and learning. Through that, we really can make a difference. My ambition was for Queen's to have touched everyone's life in Northern Ireland. That could have been through direct education and skills, through our widening participation or access programs, through our research and innovation because we've driven a lot of spin out companies. We may have touched their lives through our health research which has changed practice or outcomes or we may have uh, touched their, their lives through our spin-out companies and brought them into new sources of employment. And indeed, we're a, we're a direct employer. We employ over 4,000 people, and we're a source of indirect employment through those many spin-outs that I referred to. So these were my ambitions before COVID, and COVID really enhanced that position. We had to really focus on what we could do for society, for our students, for our staff, and for the economic recovery from COVID going forward. One thing I did learn, however, was that the university could be far more agile than anyone had ever imagined. We did things in three or four weeks that previously would have taken three or four years. 
So shortly after the, the pandemic struck, we moved Queen's almost exclusively online with remote learning, remote assessment, remote graduation. And we did that effectively and efficiently. We brought forward the uh, teaching and graduation of our students in areas like medicine, nursing and social work so that they could join the health service workforce early. To support students who were physically displaced and who had to go home, we paused all the rental contract on Queen's accommodations, allowing students not to have to pay that rent when they returned home. That was at some great cost to the university, but it was the right thing to do. We supported students who had to self-isolate, again, giving them no, no uh, their accommodation was free of charge. We gave them essential provisions. We looked after their laundry. We took away their rubbish. We gave them support services. And of course, there were many students who found themselves in hardship. So we made additional funds available through our hardship fund to try and ease that. We were also one of the first universities in the UK to look after our international students. And we did that because there are no direct flights into Northern Ireland that come from uh, the international marketplace, if you will. So we ran direct charter flights from Beijing to Belfast to bring students in directly and to deal with any issues around testing and quarantining and ensuring that these were COVID safe flights that avoided transits through say Amsterdam or London or Manchester where the students may have been more exposed uh, to virus. Here in Northern Ireland, we worked very closely with colleagues in areas such as the Public Health Agency here to uh, increase the testing capability and capacity in Northern Ireland for COVID. Uh, and we did that through a consortium. We've been one of the first UK universities to establish an asymptomatic testing centre on campus right outside my office that tests students and staff every day. And indeed we've opened that, uh, that up to other parts of society like the construction industry and to the transport industry. So that, that's been really good in supporting uh, the ability to continually work through the pandemic. With regards to the economic recovery, again, within a few weeks of the pandemic hitting, it was very clear that many people had been displaced from employment in Northern Ireland, either losing their jobs or furloughed pending resolution of the a pandemic. Northern Ireland is going through an economic change at present. We're really building up our knowledge economy here. And this was an opportunity, I guess, for us to reskill some people. So we developed a set of courses. I think we've now got 10 postgraduate certificate courses, including in areas like software development or operations and supply chain management or data analytics that takes people who've been displaced and reskills them in a course that takes five or six months, mostly online, but allows them to transition into a new sector. So it takes someone who's got no knowledge of computer science and allows them to get a job as a, a baseline software developer. And to date, we've had almost 600 applicants allocated to places on these courses. We've also continued to work with regards to research and the management of COVID. We were part of the clinical trial that looked at dexamethasone improving outcomes. We've been involved in vaccine trials, uh, as well as uh, ventilator uh, trials and even stem cell rescue trials for the lung, lung damage caused by COVID. We've made uh, PPE using, for example, our 3D printers in our engineering departments. They made really high quality face masks that were used by the NHS. And we've even reached out to the community 
and giving students in primary education who didn't have access to IT facilities, we've given them a large number of iPads, for example, so that they can access education. So we've tried to reach into the community, deal with the problem for our students, as well as transform the outcomes from COVID and aid that recovery. So these are just some examples, Bob, of what we've been doing to address the pandemic and deal with the challenges. It's uh, been quite busy over the past year. Um, obviously, there's a lot, there's a huge diversity of things uh, from the, the conceptual to the practical from involving logistics and operation uh, spanning the globe. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll cut into, I think, um, a lot of that over the next little bit here. But before we do, I mean, how are the staff and students at, at Queen's now, what is uh, essentially what is morale like I mean, here at Boston College? We're fortunate uh, to have our students on campus, um, and many are in in class. Um, I think the spirit here is to get on with it um, and hope that uh, this is uh, this is over in, in the springtime. Um, but uh, what what is the what is the temperature like on campus in regards to you know how Queens is responding to COVID? So we still have quite a number of students on campus, although many are learning remotely. And some of them are here because it enables them to access IT facilities and the internet, which of course is essential for that re remote learning. Um, the staff, I think, have done a un quite unbelievable job. They've been incredibly resistant, uh, resilient, and adaptable and resistant to stress. Uh, of course, people are tired, people have done a lot. And there has been a, um, an increase in mental health issues, particularly in our student population because of isolation. So we put extra resources in to deal with that. But overall, the students have worked very well with us and the staff, as I say, have been just unbelievable. We've maintained our student numbers despite challenges with, with admissions. For example, there have been no exams for the last two years for people exiting high school to come to university. We've had to adopt whole new approaches do things in very different ways. And our staff have really engaged, really embraced these new approaches. So I have to take my hat off to them. They've done an outstanding job and I have to congratulate them. And of course, our students for being so adaptable and receptive to such a change in their environment. Well, it, it, it's good to hear um, how quickly you were able to adapt and, and, and how uh, successfully the university is continuing to, to function. Um, you, you know, you, you you talked in that 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 piece of on reflecting on COVID about your responsibility to you know global challenges, the global community, um, and you know broadly speaking, there were the, the social aspects and the economic aspects. So I thought maybe we talk a little bit about that, um, and especially since that was something that you know was on your agenda even before COVID. It was part of your responsibilities at at Queens to have this public impact. Um, you've been working in a number of spaces around innovation uh, with the health alliances that you've set up. Um, you have a role to play, an actual role to play in the, the city deal um, in, in Belfast. So maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, the role of the university um, in innovating publicly and, and your role as president um, in, in promoting and, and facilitating those innovations. Well, by way of preamble, I should say that Queen's has a very strong reputation in this area. Queen's is actually the number one UK entrepreneurial university. That's based on the entrepreneurial impact rankings. Um, 
effectively how we commercialise our research from spin-outs and licensing through all aspects of commercialisation. So the last two years in a row, we've been first in the UK, Cambridge was second. Our local impact on the economy is substantial. Queen's a single university, provincial university in the UK. We deliver £1.9 billion of economic impact every year. With regards to our research, we deliver almost a fourfold return on each dollar spent on research in our university. So that sets the scene for what we can do for our economy and how entrepreneurial we are. Now you mentioned the city deal and what we're talking about there is a, a Belfast region a city deal. That's a bespoke intervention by government to drive the economy. And here in the UK, we're focused on a leveling up agenda because some of the regional economies have lagged behind the economy of the Southeast and the area around London, Oxford and Cambridge, if you will. So that city deal has got a number of components from tourism and infrastructure through to innovation. The innovation part of the deal is led by the universities. There are two universities in Northern Ireland, ourselves and Ulster, and we jointly lead the innovation part of that deal. That's worth around £250 million, and it's focused on a, a number of key areas that resonate with our economy, resonate with our strengths, and can really deliver. From a Queen's perspective, the key areas are in, in advanced manufacturing, uh, health, and in the, the IT and digital economy space. So we're building up an advanced manufacturing innovation centre. That's really to create the capability and capacity that can accelerate new manufacturing technology developments through the innovation phase into the production line, if you will. That will address real world challenges based on market need and will solve them through cutting edge research. Something that Queen's is good at doing. We're very good at taking a business or an industry problem, finding a university solution and working to make that transformation happen in the workplace. The manufacturing centre will have a facility which will be a factory of the future where uh, companies can try out new approaches to manufacturing, to prototyping before they then scale up. We've got a material science centre and of course on the university we've got our own campus around advanced manufacturing to drive the research and skills which will in turn flow downstream into that. So we can see that we can really shift the dial here on advanced manufacturing, where not only is this an opportunity for Queens, it's an opportunity for our whole economy. With regards to digital technologies, we've developed an innovation center there, built on our strengths around areas such as cybersecurity. And we'll take that strength, including cybersecurity, wireless connectivity, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and we'll use it to address major problems but major opportunities for Northern Ireland too. Areas such as uh, health research, uh, the agri-food industry can benefit from this. So we're gonna use our capability in the data science space to drive forward health science and agri-food, which are very important for our economy. We'll also work in the area of health research, bringing an ecosystem together, if you will, that takes our, our health service our research capabilities and the, the diagnostics and pharma sector here in Northern Ireland to link them together into that unique ecosystem. We, we can deliver early phase and late phase trials as well as real world evidence trials based on our links to the health service here 
in Northern Ireland. So it'd be a real opportunity for business to come and to invest. And as you said in the introduction, Bob, I have set up since I arrived the Health Innovation Research Alliance for Northern Ireland that brings together everyone uh, who's linked to that sector and creates a single front door. So if you're coming from outside Northern Ireland and you want a solution to a healthcare or biotech problem, there's only one door to visit and then we link up everything behind the scenes and give you access to the right capability and the right connections to make your project a reality. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about the, the practicalities of delivering innovation with um, industry. You talked about addressing industry problems and connecting you know, your resources on campus um, to, to those things. I mean, is it have, you know, you have a long career as an academic. Um, is it difficult to encourage academics or have you found it difficult to encourage academics out of an academic conversation into an applied one? Or is it is it one that you're now finding um, there's eagerness for across uh, the campus? Generally, I find that there's eagerness. Um, academics, of course, like their research to be effective, to pay dividends to society, if you will. And so when they get the opportunity, in my experience, they often embrace it and really enjoy it. It gives them a new dimension to the work that they do and allows them to see their work in terms of a, a whole spectrum that goes all the way from the very basic signs that they may have started as a piece of blue skies research. And they've ended up 10 years later, seeing it being applied in industry or in society to solve a problem. And I think that's really exciting for an academic to see. And of course, that's an interesting journey to be part of from a university perspective because you add value. An individual academic can't cover every component of that pathway, but as a university or as a university working in partnership with industry, we can and we can bring their ideas alive, bring them to fruition and make a real difference. And that could be in social innovation or it could be in economic innovation, if you will. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. I don't think uh, too many people hopefully don't go into academics just to stay in academics. You, you know, uh, hopefully people are, are using their expertise um, to, to, to benefit things. I think what's interesting in the case of Queens is this, this mandate that you have and this um, kind of this large infrastructure that you have, have kind of built up around it across these, um, across these areas that are, are key to the, um, to the economy in Northern Ireland. I mean, when you identify areas that you work in, such as cybersecurity and digital technologies or agri-business and, and science, I mean, how are you identifying those? Are, is that something that is done in concert with um, the, you know, the, the government in Northern Ireland? Or is this something that's being driven by the existing kind of assets that you have at, at Queen's? I mean, what, what's that kind of impetus like to, you know, go down a path and identify an area that's you know, critically important for, for you to engage in? So I think it's a combination of assets and opportunity. You've got to look at the assets that you've got in the university, which are usually your people and what their strengths are. And when you can marry that to an area of opportunity, things go really well. And perhaps the best examples are in the areas of say cybersecurity here, where there was significant expertise in the university and significant opportunity in society and industry to really make that happen. The same would go for uh, aspects of food security where we're seen as, as world leading and for areas in, in healthcare where we can really make a, a difference. 
a very good example um, is, is in the work of shared education. And shared education started life as a research project in Queen's probably almost 15 years ago now. And what it did was address problems in our divided society by taking children from either side of our divided community and putting them into the same classroom for some of the lessons that they got at school. That brought the communities together through the children. That became part and parcel of not just our educational policy, but educational practice here in Northern Ireland. Further, it's been adapted or adopted across the world in places like Palestine, Kosovo, South Africa, where there are divided societies and where it can make a real difference. And in recognition of that work, we won the Queen's Anniversary Prize, uh, which we were presented with just last year. And I was able to visit Buckingham Palace with our team who delivered that, that research and seen it, seen it progress into practice. We went to the palace to get that award. That's highly impactful and perhaps shows the type of approach that we can do and also illustrates that it's not simply contained to new products or industry, but can make a real difference to society. That's great. I'm glad you brought up um, shared education. It's, I think uh, for anyone who follows uh, the politics in Northern Ireland, it's, you know, shared education is one of the great hopes um, for the future. And it's obviously some outstanding work that, that Queens has done. Um, you know, it, as part of the, um, the new de decade, new approach um, deal under the, the educational uh, structure, there, there was specific reference to persistent educational underachievement and the way that's linked to social and economic opportunities. And you've already raised this a little bit around access um, and, and development. I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that, um, about the role that the university is playing using its innovative capabilities uh, to enhance you know, access and, and the leveling up agendas, I think you put it earlier. Yeah, delighted to talk to you about this, Bob. This is a, an area that's very close to my heart and I'm personally highly committed to, as is everyone in Queens. Widening participation, as, as we call it here, is a key priority for us on all levels. We want to increase the diversity of our student population and we want to increase the level of attainment. We want to support more young people from socially disadvantaged backgrounds to really access university and see Queens as a viable option for them. So we've got a number of uh, widening participation programs to draw people in. We've got a whole specialist unit that does it. My favorite is our flagship program called the Pathway Opportunity Program. That takes students in the latter years of school and prepares them for university, supports them, lets them see what university is about. We actually take them onto campus. They can stay in our halls of residence. They understand what university is. They can see what it's like to study here. We facilitate their transition to university and we allow them discounted exam grades to get in because we've recognized their ability in advance and their, their absolute level of achievement might be less than, than a peer in another school, but we know that they've got the capability to succeed. And indeed, I would say when you look at the outcome, they, their success rates every bit as good as any other group of students at the university. So we'll, they certainly can deliver. Once they come to Queen's, we support them. And indeed, we've spent a lot of time ensuring that we had philanthropic support for them because as well as the academic support, it's good for them to get a small bursary. It takes them through the three years. Now in 2018, when I arrived, we took 12 students onto that program. They're completing their programs this year and they'll graduate, albeit a virtual graduation in July. 
This year, we welcomed 105 new pathway students here at Queen's with that support, both academic uh, and uh, financial. So we, we can make a real difference there. That's almost a, a, around a ninefold difference in the space of two years. We want to see that programme develop along with our other widening access programmes because we believe the way to transform society, and I'm sure you would agree, is through education and opportunity. That, that's, uh, that's interesting. I, how, how large do you anticipate the Pathways program uh, becoming under your kind of tenure as president? Do you have a projection of how many students might go through a year in, in a couple of years' time? Well, I think it would be in the small number of hundreds. Okay. I should say, if you look at this overall, almost 28 to 30% of our students have a degree of social disadvantage or economic disadvantage. Um, and so we, we, as a university, are very good at admitting and welcoming students from um, those cohorts. We know we can make a real difference and we want to work with them to continue that progress and uh, really accelerate it. Uh, it, it sounds like a uh, really worthwhile program. I, you know, I, the one question that, um, and this comes up occasionally at uh, elite institutions, is this um, attitude of gatekeeping, right? The institution has built up its reputation over a number of years. Um, and then over time, the function becomes um, not about promoting more access, but um, restricting it, in fact, and, and protecting that uh, perceived the, using that as a perceived way to protect value. Um, I mean, did you, a, a, I mean, was that something that you needed to consider as you, you know, launched this Pathways program? It was, it a, was it a challenge for you or was, you know, our, our, is the access agenda and the path and projects like the Pathways program something that um, is, is accepted by not only the university, but the, you know, largest society is something that needs to be done within the higher education system in Northern Ireland. Oh, it's both accepted and encouraged. Um, the issue for us is a, a little bit different because um, the university system in the UK differs significantly from the US. And here in Northern Ireland, we have a cap on the number of Northern Irish, Northern Ireland students that we can take. That cap is given to us by government and it's restricted by the amount of funding available. <clears throat> so in Northern Ireland, we have around 70 university places for every 100 applicants. In England, they have 120 university places for every 100 applicants. So we don't meet our overall demand for university places locally. And that means that around 30% of our young people leave Northern Ireland for their education elsewhere in the United Kingdom. And most of them don't come back. So we do see a loss of young people from Northern Ireland because of, in part because of limited university places. So since I've come here, we've absolutely maximized and taken every opportunity to get more students from Northern Ireland into Queens who wanted to come here, obviously. And indeed, during the pandemic last year, we recognized that many students didn't want to, to travel away from home given all the problems. And we took another 650 students at our own risk because there was no funding that came with them from government. We did get the, the fee element that they pay the fee element here is quite modest. It's just over £4,000 per student, and that's backed by a government-based loan. So the student hasn't, doesn't have to make an initial outlay. The rest of the fee would come from government. Um, but we felt, despite the absence of any such agreement, we should go out there and allow more students into Queen's. So we took around 650 more last year because of, of these restrictions. So we would like to see many more students being able to go to university in Northern Ireland, uh, those who are able and who want to, 
uh, and they, they do want to stay here for their education, we would certainly welcome them, but we, we need to be resourced to do that. Um, when we look at the widening access uh, students, we do take them in within the existing cohorts, and we are also working with other educational providers in Northern Ireland, our further education colleges, for example, to find additional ways to, to widen that access and bring students in. A good example is we work with Belfast Metropolitan College and their computer science course now articulates with ours. And a student who started life in Belfast Met can move to Queen's for the final year of our computer science programme because the courses talk to each other and create a nice continuum. And that widens our opportunities for widening participation and perhaps circumvents some of these issues with student number controls. That's great. And I'm familiar with some of the work that you, your colleagues have done in um, the, the Center for Secure Information Technologies on engaging with companies and, and upscaling people and, and through this crisis um, and uh, has had a real um, impact um, on uh, you know, people's lives and, and their employability and then the larger you know, economic structure in, in, um, in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, as part of this, obviously you're, you're collaborating with a lot of different um, institutions and, and people across uh, Northern Ireland and, and, and into um, Great Britain. Uh, you're also president of um, Universities Ireland and, um, you know, that you, you collaborate with your peers there. I mean, could you talk a little bit about how Queen's is interacting with, um, you know, peers across the island um, and, you know, specifically, you know, through this Brexit process and what that has meant for collaboration with, you know, now European universities. So when I came to Northern Ireland, I became aware that we could do more across the island by working with each other because we've got common challenges, whether that's in areas of health and COVID is an obvious issue with an infection challenge. There's a common challenge in cancer. There are common challenges around food and data science. And these challenges are also aligned with opportunities. So I um, took up position as head of Universities Ireland uh, just last year, and we brought together all of the nine universities in Ireland to look at what we could do by working together, not by competing with one another, but can we put our best people together our resources together to come up with something that will really change uh, a particular area, which could be health, climate, agri-food, engineering, data science. We've now reached the stage where we've, we've mapped out that capability and capacity. We know how we could work together to address common problems. And we're now in discussion with government, both in the UK and in Ireland, about how we might fund some of these initiatives and whether we can take that bottom-up approach and marry it with a top-down government funding initiative that could make a real difference. And of course, I would say that it's not simply about North and South of Ireland. This is actually about a, a wider collaborative agenda between the UK and Ireland, because some of the strengths we would want to bring in from working with UK universities um, who are based in GB and who might also be able to contribute to do something that was really uh, impactful across this island. And that builds on other collaborations that I've been developing since I arrived here. We work uh, in collaboration with Ulster University, for example, in the city deal that I referred to. They're developing a new medical school in Derry. We're helping them there. 
We've worked with Ulster University to set up a think tank, a, a policy think tank for Northern Ireland because there wasn't one. And so I think we're now changing our approach in the university sector here, away from one of competition to collaboration in order to address major local, regional, national, and indeed global challenges. That, um, that's great. We have a couple of questions that have come in uh, that touch on some of this. One question uh, from a listener uh, participant here um, reads, given the continuing travel challenges, um, strategically, what are the initiatives that you're planning to maintain Queen's excellent outreach uh, mission internationally in particular, and then here in the United States, this, I guess, speaks to the, you know, the collaboration, um, you know, with, with, with foreign entities and, and, and your peers around the world. So that's a really good question, because it's something that's been a challenge to us. We're all used to traveling, um, and I would frequently be in the road, whether it's India, China, the US, building up partnerships, initiating new ones, and we've had to change. And by and large, that's gone really well. Just by uh, example, tomorrow I'm introducing a symposium between the UK and India on health data science. Yesterday, I introduced a symposium where the speaker was Michael Dowling, who's head of Northwell Health in New York, to talk about how he managed healthcare through a pandemic. So I think I've been pleasantly surprised by how well we've managed that international engagement despite the difficulties in travel. And I believe that higher education will change because of COVID. We've learned to be more flexible in our working. We've shrunk the world, if you will, through Zoom and Microsoft Teams. Now, it doesn't replace completely that physical interaction, which I think we really need, but it certainly can replace some of it and it can make our life easier and make us more productive. So I think we'll see a new flexible approach to how we operate in partnership across the world not just in the higher education sector, but I guess across all sectors. Absolutely, the digital um, opportunities that now exist are are kind of interesting and and um, you know can be productive. I know, um, you know, just speaking with students on campus, they are looking in particular to travel abroad at the nearest opportunity. Although that likely won't be this fall because both of the situation around the pandemic and the desire to. Um, to actually return to a, a normal campus life. So it could be, could be another, um, you know, three quarters of a year before we see a lot of opportunities there. But, um, but, but there, you're right, there definitely are um, new opportunities that are coming up. There's another question that's come in um, that takes us back a little bit to enrollment. And um, the question reads, um, in this new world of enrollment through online learning, how do you see the number of students rising at Queens. Do you, do you think the impact of COVID will offer opportunities to universities to work together on increasing and diversifying their student population? Yeah, I think we're in for a challenging time. Um, but what we saw last year was actually our numbers, both of home and international students go up. Whether that persists, of course, is another matter. But generally, when you have an economic downturn, you have an upturn in the demand for tertiary education. So we are anticipating that we will see a higher demand, both from the international market and from the home market uh, over the next few years. We also recognize that we're going to be, have to be much more flexible on how we deliver education. People may want it part-time, 
maybe onto online, maybe partly online, maybe over a prolonged period, maybe more compressed. And I think as universities, we've got to become less traditional, more flexible and more agile to meet those needs. So I think we're in a, a, a very um, interesting time of evolution in the university sector. I think there'll be a big demand for how we work. And I think that we have to be more flexible in how we deliver it. An area that we've not touched on as much as we should has been flagged up by that question. And that is, can universities, plural, work together to deliver certain courses? And I think that's a really important opportunity for us to grasp. I think there's no, there's no longer a need to contain all students and deliver everything within our own campuses. I think we should be able to broaden what we offer our students by sharing. And if we don't have access to particular expertise or skills, then can we work with another university to provide it? And I suspect we'll see more of that going forward now that we've seen we've got the capability to deliver on that. And that's, that is uh, really interesting. There's a, there are a few um, high profile examples of that out there already. I'm thinking of uh, Trinity Colleges and Columbia's collaboration. Um, it, I think one of the, the challenges that, you know, I've experienced in, in programming like that is kind of aligning curriculum and curriculum um, standards. So, I mean, what are some of the key challenges that you, you think would need to be addressed in kind of joint degree delivery uh, with, with, with a partner university? I guess it depends where that partner is and what system they're in. So obviously, if it's a UK to UK university, it's probably relatively easy. If it's on the international space, that would require a bit more work to make sure that things lined up because courses and approaches may differ. But it's far from impossible. Um, and, and I think we should see much more of that. That local example I mentioned where you could go to do computer science at Belfast Metropolitan College and end up coming to Queen's, that took a bit of work, but it, it wasn't um, so difficult to make it impossible. In fact, we felt having achieved that, we should be rolling that out across other programs, allowing the creation of a university system, if you will, in Northern Ireland, that would allow students to move up and down between organizations. And I see no reason why we couldn't over time develop that with key partners across the world. I think you mentioned what was the impact of Brexit in one of the questions. Mm. And you know, there's been some disadvantages, but one advantage that I'd like to flag is the new UK's International Student Mobility Programme called the Turing Programme. It's just been launched. And previously in the UK, we had access to the European system, the Erasmus Programme, which allowed students from go to go to any European country really, and those reciprocity between European universities. The Turing Programme differs from Erasmus in that it's not European, it's truly international. And they're very keen to see student mobility go to the US, to India, to the Far East. And we're already starting discussions now with the US about how we can have uh, the Turing scheme applied to our students exiting uh, Northern Ireland for six weeks, two months, a year to work in a North American institution. And that type of approach will start to bring universities together and there'll probably be a greater closeness of our curriculum and in turn, I think that the uh, initiative that you were talking about earlier will be easier for us to achieve. The more we can get staff and students moving across organizations, across countries, the better. I think it really makes uh, those type of collaborative approaches much easier. 
So although we've seen some challenges with Brexit, particularly around um, the logistics of moving, moving things from GB to, to Ireland, and whenever you create any form of border, you're going to get some friction. Um, we can see some really good opportunities on the international front for collaborations such as with North America. And indeed, uh, some of our colleagues are talking about links in cancer research between the UK, Ireland and the US. So some fantastic opportunities, as well as some disadvantages from uh, the, the, the problems of working between GB and Northern Ireland. Well, that's that's really interesting, and um, I'm encouraged to hear you talk about actually putting colleagues in touch with one another. I think at base, um, you know, whatever the system is, um, really comes down to people speaking and uh, with one another and sharing kind of their challenges and their opportunities and developing the relationships they need to um, in order to um, to work together effectively. I think that's one of the biggest challenges uh, we have constantly, just not knowing who's out there and what they're doing, even if you're aware of their work um, academically. Um, maybe uh, you could talk a little bit about your role as a, as a public leader. Um, I think, you know, from a di different from a private institution in the US, um, maybe more similar to um, a land-grant institution in the U.S., our public university system, you have a, this role where you lead the university, the students, the academic, the faculty, the staff, the facilities, but you have a public responsibility um, there. So, you know, you know as president of, of Queens, how do you um, reconcile, you know, those relationships and how do you figure out, you know, who am I leading and what am I leading them on in this, this instance, you know, this difference between your university facing um, profile and, and your, your, your more general public facing profile? So I, I don't see them as different. I see them as interlinked and perhaps the, the audience, if you like, might be different, but the goal and the objective is the same. And I guess leadership comes in, in very different styles. And personally, I prefer a stewardship approach rather than a transactional hierarchical command and control approach. And I think that works very well in the university system. And I've certainly found it to work well across that public-private interface that you were referring to. Generally, the people we work with are self-motivated. They seek responsibility. They want to achieve goals. So enabling and supporting them, trusting them, to work well can really deliver for the organization or the organization's plural. So when it comes to leadership, I usually start by trying to set out the direction and the purpose. And for this university, it's that social and economic impact through excellence in teaching and research and the delivery of international level research and innovation that makes a difference. If everyone understands the common goal, it allows devolved decision-making and it allows different organizations all to contribute. So that goal-centered approach rather than a process-driven approach, I think is essential. You've then got to use your influence to, to get the message over, to get people on that same track, if you will. So communication both inside the organization and outside the organization with consistent messages inside and out is really important to deliver that shared agenda and ideally we want to create a partnership between the university sector, the government, business, and indeed other universities. So we think that by getting that consistency of communication around a shared goal, enabling people, enabling organizations, we can make a real difference. 
Now, of course, for people to believe in that, you've got to be authentic as a leader. You've got to build trust and respect. You've got to be fair and balanced. You've got to do what you say, deliver what you promise. And if you do that, I think you can make substantial uh, progress. None of it happens unless you have that devolved decision-making because no one leader can deliver all the components necessary for success nowadays. You've got to have the leaders across the organization and, and across the organizations uh, enabled to make decisions. And remember that they are people who are usually closer to the customer, in our case, the students, closer to the research, while knowing the organization and the overall context. It's also really important to be agile as we've learned from the COVID pandemic. And of course, we should celebrate collaborative achievement because what we can achieve by working together is so much more than any one individual person or organization can achieve. Um, that's really interesting. You, um, you talked about devolving responsibility to leaders across um, your, your organization. I mean, you know, what are some of the things that you, that you do, you know, very practically speaking, uh, to remind yourself um, you know, to, to actually do that? Is that something that you need to, is that a structure, I suppose, is what I'm asking, or is that something you need to practice on a, you know, instance by instance basis, you know, pushing kind of leadership responsibilities, um, you know, to, to your colleagues? I'm not sure you have to practice that. I think you have to enable and encourage it and to trust people. Um, and from my perspective, I guess I've learned this because I've been on both sides of the fence. I've seen what it's like to run a department or a school or a faculty. And I think if you can see both perspectives, you understand how enabling a leader within the organization can really be highly effective in delivering the organization's goals and supporting you. And at the same time, supporting them and making them a better leader. So I guess it's more an attitude than something that's been learned. It's, it's an approach, it's an approach that I've found has paid off for me and my style of leadership, but it may not be for everyone. Uh, that, you know, that's really useful to have those insights from um, someone who's had such a diverse and, and, and long career and, and such a big job currently. Uh, we have only a, um, a few minutes left. And so if anyone has a question, I would encourage you to ask it um, now. Um, as, as we wrap up here, I, you know, I thought maybe you could reflect for a few moments on the US, UK, European relationship. Obviously, you know, Queens is involved in that relationship in a very deep way from, you know, student exchanges to your international outreach, you know, to work that's being done on, on campus and, you know, the Clinton Institute or the Mitchell Institute. Um, you know, what are your hopes for, you know, the Biden administration um, in, in terms of the work that you're, you're doing at Queens? Well, Ireland, North and South, has got very strong relationships with the US. Uh, and certainly from our perspective, I believe we could do much more with regards to collaboration. Uh, developing links to North America are very important for our university. We've got lots of alumni there. We've got an extensive alumni community. We've got a number of honorary graduates. Our chancellor is Secretary Hillary, Hillary Clinton, as you know. We've got connections to your own university, Boston College. And I think that Fergal McGarry is currently a, a visiting professor there at the present time. And I know there's been quite a lot of exchange between our two universities over the last few years, not just in, in, in staff exchanges, but also uh, in, with conferences and in fact, also with students. So 
we can see just from that one university, the type of approach that can really pay dividends to the connectivity that we need. And indeed, one special thing I'd, I'd really like to flag up is a link to our, our Center for Secure Information Technologies, CSIP, which has a very strong relationship with Boston College. Now that relationship grew out of the All-Ireland Cybersecurity Professional Exchange Program that the college ran uh, for the US State Department. And that's continued to flourish. And as part of our offer to uh, reskill the workforce of Northern Ireland that I was telling you about in relation to COVID, we've set up that new uh, postgraduate certificate in cybersecurity, which we deliver online. And in order to use that to further cement the relationship with Boston College, I'm really delighted to announce that, that CISA, our organization, are introducing a new prize for the best. Queen's Postgraduate Certificate Applied Cybersecurity student, and they're going to have a bursary onto Boston College's Cybersecurity Strategy Online Certificate Program. So binding our universities together even further. So these are just a couple of examples about how we can work together. I believe there's much more to do, not just with Boston College, but with other universities in the US. And I'm very much looking forward to strengthening in that, that agenda in the year ahead and especially once travel resumes. Well, uh, uh, thank you, Professor. Uh, we are very excited, um, of course, to uh, continue our collaborations with um, our colleagues in, in CSIT. The, the, the work over there is um, very impressive and its connection to um, the, the regional economy, I think is um, kind of now renowned in the US. I, I certainly here in, in Massachusetts where um, cybersecurity and, and software development is is a big part of um, the you know our, our economy, Rapid Seven, and 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 a number of other um, institutions, including our financial services sector. So we're really excited about that collaboration. We'll have to find a way to reciprocate um, over the next um, few months here, and I'm, and I'm sure we'll be able to to do that. So we, we're we're very excited to uh, to continue to collaborate. I, I want to thank you um, for taking the time today. Uh, you've given us an hour of your life to give us an insight into not only your leadership practices, but the way Queens is um, leading as a as a driver in, in economic and economic and social access and and development um, for Northern Ireland and um, the, the UK and, 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 and the island of Ireland. So I thank you for your time today. Um, I would like to welcome anyone who's here to join us next week. We'll be hearing from uh, Francis Fitzgerald, um, MEP, um, of course, uh, former Tanishta um, in, in the Republic of Ireland on an Ireland at Boston College um, Global Leadership uh, Fireside Chat. Uh, Professor, thank you again for your time today. You're very welcome. joining us today as we work to enhance Boston College's presence and impact in the world by building trust, community, and dialogue. Please visit our website at bc.edu for more information on today's speaker, and follow us on Twitter at GLIATBC, or find us on LinkedIn at Global Leadership Institute at Boston College.